Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast. And in this episode, we will be reading two articles that discuss two concepts for fishing for steelhead. One has to do with high water steelhead fishing, and the other has to do with cold water steelhead fishing and the concept of a lethargic fish. So, I am your host, Lucas Holmgren, and I am happy to have you here with me. The first article that I will be reading is entitled, The Chocolate Yeti, Finding Steelhead at Flood Stage, written by Matt Straw. Homework is done. The river is perfect. Time to go. But while driving all night to reach it, the heavens unleash. Sasquatch forms a bucket brigade, dumping an endless stream on the windshield from above. The wipers surrender, you pull over to the side. Now what? You know that target river down the road is swelling past average flows, gaining momentum, turning brown. The enraged chocolate beast overruns the banks and tosses its inhabitants around like rag dolls. Chocolate rivers swirl through our nightmares. Flood phobias stem from annual experiences with torrential rains and snowmelt that blow rivers out in spring, making it difficult to predict when to travel and where to go. Rivers can jump from bone dry to flood stage overnight in spring despite drier than usual conditions, but the blade cuts both ways. Warming weather and rain have a way of triggering a lot of silver missiles to launch up river. Blown out rivers tend to coincide with the first big push of uneducated active steelhead. Many look at a blown out chocolate river and drive on by to check the next tributary up the coast. Me too. Sometimes we're forced to embrace the raging flow because every reachable river is in the same shape. Or we don't have time to drive up the coast, or whatever. Love that brown yeti. Just a few days a year, all you can afford to spend on the hunt for stainless bullets, only to arrive at the doorstep of the chocolate yeti. Nothing to do but embrace it. One reason we fear the yeti is the fact that the usual spots never produce. But appearances deceive. Too few of us check the most obvious spots of all, the spots we're standing in right under our boots. Spring run steelhead have a biological imperative ticking away like a time bomb inside their relatively tiny but complex brains that screams, must spawn soon. They're also sight feeders with a penchant for inhabiting clear, highly oxygenated water. Floodwaters carry fine silt that stings their gills and reduces their visual field to an area inches across. The must-spawn imperative outweighs preferences for clean water, and no matter how bad the river looks, steelhead will run it if the water temperature is warming and the spawning window is open. Upon plunging into a flood-stage river, steelhead find leaves, sticks, garbage, branches, and waterlogged trees tumbling downstream at them. With visibility severely reduced, they can't see an object coming until it approaches quite close. Steelhead can pick up vibrations from large objects with their lateral lines, but smaller things can pose problems. The obvious answer is to get out of the main flow where all the usual spots are. The areas of reduced flow in a river become the pass of least resistance to any fish migrating upstream in high water. The larger the area of reduced flow, the more likely steelhead will hold or pause there. Migrating fish can be uncatchable. Holding fish are the prime targets. The likeliest areas include the downstream side of an inside bend, the slow side of a long run, or a shallow flat out of the main flow below a dam cascade or steep rapids, or any shallow water out of the main flow or hiding behind a current break. 
Often these spots are quite close to the bank where the shoreline itself further slows down the current through friction. Slower water allows some of the silt to settle while most debris tends to be swept into faster current lanes. Cloudy water giveth and it taketh away. They can't see you. Even in two feet of water you remain invisible until you're standing on top of them. I've been mistaken for a tree trunk by high water steelies many times since they can't see danger. They seem to suppose it doesn't exist. Can be quite aggressive if you don't stomp around like Sasquatch or wade through them. The problem is, is they can't see your bait either. They're like a pack of Mr. Magoo's in cloudy water. So appeal to their sense of smell, bulk the bait up, fish it on bottom and slow it down. The inside of a bend is a classic high water spot. In low water, the shallow flat on the inside of the bend is a spot to wade while fishing the deeper outside bend. In high water, steelhead hold on that shallow flat where you were wading last year. So don't wade in before thoroughly working an inside bend. The higher the water, the farther below the point or middle of the bend and the closer to the bank steelhead will hold. In true flood, steelhead hold behind things like standing trees and cut banks around flooded footpaths, almost always below the midpoint of a bend on the inside of the turn in shallow water. The fast water continues to follow the same bank down the outside bend. Long runs have considerably slower water on the same side as the inside of the nearest bend upriver, and steelhead often hold all along an inside run in high water. Just keep fishing slowly downstream below an inside bend and stay on the bank. Make short casts. In fact, drop the first bait in right by your boots. Fish on bottom, making progressively longer casts out to mid-river and sweeping them up against the bank below you. Let the bait sit for a minute or so at the end of each drift. A big tangle of logs or fallen trees on the slow side of the river can hold a lot of steelhead. Get right behind it on the bank and literally drop baits down into the tangle on the downstream side, probing every nook you can drag the bait through. On shallow flats adjacent to any kind of plunge pool or embankment out of the main flow, your best method tends to be float fishing. A float represents the quickest way to find the slowest currents over expansive areas and covers a flat most efficiently with less snags and less downtime. Hooking Magoo High water spots on most rivers call for bottom bouncing gear. An 8.5 foot to 10 foot medium power rod with a fairly fast action is key. In high cloudy water, steelhead are less line shy. Use a 10 to 12 pound monofilament main line with an 8 to 10 pound mono leader. Tough abrasion resistant lines like Andy Premium and Maxima Ultra Green are an absolute must. Fluorocarbon isn't necessary. Use it if you like, but when Mr. Magoo finds that big fast water, it's nice to have maximum stretch and shock absorption handy. My favorite rig in high water is very simple. It starts with a Mustad 9260D, which is not a premium hook, but it has a down eye and a beaked point, creating a smaller gap that less wood fits into. The beaked point deflects off more wood than a straight point. And because it's not a premium hook, it can be straightened out when snagged in wood and it can still land a steelhead after being reshaped. In wood, I often tie the hook right to the main line and place several split shot 18 inches to 2 feet above it. The hook is the usual culprit when snagged in wood, so it's rare to lose sinkers this way. If the rig breaks off, one knot puts you back in the business. The water you should be fishing is slow and your cast short, so line twist should be minimal. If the bottom is rocky, tie on a barrel swivel and attach a short, two foot, eight to 10 pound leader, leaving a four to five inch tag end for attaching split shot pencil lead or drop shot weights. 
In really heavy rock, tie a snap swivel to the tag end and clip it through a slinky, which is a buckshot and a parachute cord. Tin split shot works well for this too because it tends to bounce. Leaders should be kept short to keep the bait close to eye level, but the slower the water, the longer the leader can be. Out to about three feet because steelhead often hold off bottom where silt is less dense. In a true flood, steelhead can be penned into pretty confined spots right on the bottom and a one foot leader works better. Yarn fishermen tend to excel in high water. Bright, fluorescent yarn in shades of white, chartreuse, glow, or fire orange stands out in cloudy conditions. I often use yarn snelled to the back of the hook with a bumper knot or plastic eggs in conjunction with Titleist size spawn bags to create a big bright package with scent appeal. Well, not really the size of a golf ball, but something with a diameter ranging from a quarter to a 50 cent piece. When tying these spawn bags, I add bright fluorescent styrofoam float beads to keep the hook off bottom and to add contrasting color. In high water conditions, the most visible netting tends to be chartreuse or fluorescent white, followed equally by fluorescent shades of pink and orange. I often contrast the color of the float beads with the color of the netting to make the beads stand out. Big plastic eggs add translucent color, bulk, and some buoyancy to the package. Run a magnum egg all the way up to the hook to cover the eye and secure it on the knot before baiting up with spawn. I like to use a green or chartreuse egg with orange spawn bags, or vice versa. Contrast bright colors and one will stand out. Another way to brighten and bulk up the package is the leader float. Slide a glow or fluorescent warden's little corky onto the leader above the hook. This keeps the bait up better and adds more color than styrofoam float beads, though I often use both. The cloudier the water, the more the rig needs to be overweighted. It's best to have it drag on bottom even to the point where the rig has to be prompted along with the rod. Give Steelhead a good long look at it. On shallow flats, slide a float like the Thill River Master on the line. Tie on a swivel below it, place just enough shot on the line be between the float and the swivel to make the float stand up. And tie in a two foot fluorocarbon leader. I like fluorocarbon here because the leader is dangling down at the fish from above. To that, attach a relatively heavy jig, one eighth to one quarter ounce, adorned with yarn, white feathers, or marabou. Glow-in-the-dark jigs and shades of pink, white, and chartreuse work best by creating an aura of lighted silt and particles around the bait. Bait up with a big spawn sack and systematically cover the flat, checking the float hard to slow it down. Checking means holding the float back so it isn't swept along in the faster surface currents while still allowing it to slip downstream. That way the jig is in their face before the float passes overhead, but more importantly, it affords old chrome head a good long look. If you find the chocolate yeti this spring, don't fight it. If you can't escape by running to another venue, fish a little differently. Stay on the bank and fish where you typically wade to find more high water steel. Matt Straw is a seasoned steelhead angler as well as a frequent contributor to Great Lakes Angler as well as Salmon Trout Steelheader. This article holds true for Great Lakes and Pacific Northwest fisheries and is an excellent resource when you're stuck with heavy and even flood stage water. It can be done. It is not the most attractive water level to walk up to, but as you hear in the article, experienced and very motivated steelheaders can still pull out fish during these conditions. Now that we have talked about high water and even flood stage steelhead, we're gonna talk about another subject having to do with difficult steelhead conditions. This particular article is referring to a lethargic steelhead 
which is most commonly associated with very cold water. This article is called The Lethargic Steelhead Myth and is written by Neil Zundel. This article was featured in December 2010 issue of Salmon Trail Steelheader. Quote unquote, Winter steelhead are lethargic creatures that don't eat in fresh water. When they pick up a bait or lure, it's just a reflex, or maybe memory is feeding as a smolt. And they won't move much to take a bait or lure. You have to put it right in their face to even have a chance at a strike. For many years, these two rules have been asserted in countless books and articles as if they were absolutely ironclad. While it's conceded that some fish some of the time won't either move to take a bait, or anything else, the truth is that a steelhead's reaction to bait can range all the way from totally oblivious to practically suicidal. These fish, more often than not, are wide awake, hungry, and not the least bit lethargic. I fish in an unconventional style, generally using a small bait of eggs on a number one hook. While there are, of course, some fish in deep, fast water, I find most of mine in the slower, shallower water a short cast from the bank where a split shot is enough weight to get in the zone, six inches above the gravel. If I feel the shot tick bottom a couple of times during the drift, I'm happy. On rare occasions, in a very slow slot, even the one shot can be removed. The eggs alone, which are heavier than water, will get down among them. With this comparatively slack line, I've had many, many steelheads swallow the bait, which makes me suspect that most of them actually try to swallow it, and would if they had the chance. There is a simple reason they seldom get that chance. Typically the bait is moving through the drift fairly quickly, and when the fish picks up the eggs and before you can even start to swallow them, the line quickly pulls the hook toward the corner of his mouth. If we're lucky, he holds on till we feel him and set the hook. We seldom get the privilege, and privilege it is, of actually watching a steelhead take. More than 99 out of 100 are not visible at the time, so it's easy to stay with the myth that they won't move much for the bait. When I have been lucky enough to clearly see a take, it revealed steelhead behavior that was completely surprising and totally contrary to the myths. Here are some examples. Six different times I've had steelhead chase my eggs almost to my rod tip. One was on a big Oregon river. I was fishing a hole that a slow, deep eddy right at my feet. As I was retrieving for a second cast with my bait almost to the top, I was startled by the sight of a bright fish charging out of the depths, zeroed in on my eggs. I quickly dropped the bait back and they were instantly inhaled, and the fish streaked away. I was so surprised that I snapped the line on the hook set, then stood there looking stupid, glad no one else was there to laugh. The other five times were all in the same small Washington stream at widely separate times. With number one, I had what was nearly a repeat of the Oregon fiasco, only this fish barely missed the eggs as I lifted them from the water. I immediately dropped them back, straight under my rod tip, then tightened and she was there. This time things held and the 16 pound hatchery hen found her way onto the bank. With number two, I was side by side with a friend on a big rock a few feet above the water. When again, a fish followed my retrieve right to the top and grabbed the eggs, but I somehow missed him clean on the hook set. While I was rebaiting, my friend got him on the next cast. The fish was kept, my friend was thrown back. Fish number three chased the bait to the top, missing by a split second. I knew he would take it on the next cast. I had already had a great day with several fish landed. In one of my rare acts of pity for my brother, who was usually stiff competition but still skunked that day, I invited him to take my fish. He grumbled that he didn't need a guide and held out firmly for nearly five seconds, then got him on the first cast. 
There was one deep groove in a stretch of river that was solid bedrock under about 18 inches of water. After the eggs drifted through, I started retrieving and fish number four slipped up out of the slot, chased and slurped in the bait, and tried to head back. Fish number five was holding in the deepest water of a classic drift. I was standing well back in one foot of water, which gradually sloped to maybe four feet deep in the slot and casting about 45 feet. The bait slid all the way through and swung clear out of the holding water. I started my retrieve and was halfway in when the fish charged out of the hole, honing in on the gob of eggs, which was already 25 feet away from him. I slowed the retrieve to a crawl, hoping he wouldn't see me, and amazingly, he just kept coming. The bait was less than 15 feet away and 18 inches of very clear water when he sucked it in and started the return trip. I guess his lethargy had quit working. Probably my most amazing encounter with a steelhead was when I first started fishing for them and was using an oaky drifter. A huge fir tree had fallen clear across the river which, with part of the trunk touching the water. I put several drifts under the tree with nothing. So I walked out on the trunk to take a look. There were eight bright fish lined up in the shadow. I must have put 30 more drifts to them without results before I lost hope and had me mechanically retrieved the oaky almost to the gravel bar, where it was maybe eight inches deep, and noticed it pop to the top. I was looking the other way when I heard a huge splash and the sickening sound of a breaking line. I've also watched one strike on a spoon, which is my second choice after eggs. As I watched the brass spoon flash along, I clearly saw a big buck rip out from the side of a big rock with unbelievable speed. He had the spoon in a split second. I'd finally seen one of those vicious strikes I'd only felt before. When a steelhead strikes a spoon, he's attacking a frantic bait fish and killing it before it can get away. On the other hand, he simply sucks eggs in, even if he has to move a long way first to do it. So what really goes on down there? Beside these right-off-the-rod-tip encounters, I've also watched a very revealing behavior on two different crystal-clear streams while drifting eggs to fish that were plainly visible in fairly shallow water. Both times the same thing happened. My casts were a bit short, but instead of swinging toward me to pick them up as I expected, the steelhead seemed to completely ignore the eggs as they drifted past. Then they suddenly turned away from the eggs, quickly swam downstream about 20 feet, did another quick 180 degree turn, and then moved smoothly up to intercept and take the drifting eggs. A beautiful sight. Maybe this happens a lot, we just seldom get the chance to see it. For a long time I was mystified by the feel of a steelhead bite. Finally, the light came on. They rarely feel like a small trout wrapping away at the bait. A steelhead simply moves to the bait, pulls it in with a gulp of water, and tries to swallow it whole without any biting or chewing at all. If the bait were free-floating, not attached to a line, he would do exactly that. Line pressure not only prevents him from swallowing, but pulls him a little off balance. Not immediately alarmed, but wanting to hold his place, he starts to work his tail a little harder against the unaccustomed pressure. So what I was really feeling, that slow, exciting pulsation, was not the mouth at all, but the gentle stroking of a tail. There are three variations of this take, each with a different feel, and the key to understanding them is realizing that a steelhead, unless he is actually traveling at the moment, finds a comfortable spot to hold, and after moving occasionally, for whatever reason, always returns to it. So if my bait drifts directly to him, he simply opens his mouth, sucks it in, and I feel the tail strokes. When I get that so-called hard bite, the bait is passed on my side of him. He has swung over, picked it up, and just headed back to his hold, giving me a strong pull in the process. 
or done the circle trick and given me the heavy pull on his way back upstream. The farther he moves, the harder the pull. The third variation was baffling the first few times it happened. Suddenly, in the middle of a drift, my line felt dead for a couple of seconds. I finally figured out that this meant the bait had swung on by the far side of the fish. He had moved out, picked it up, and swum back to his hold, toward me. This threw slack in the line until the pressure of the current tightened it up again, putting me back in contact. So whether I feel that subtle pulsation, a strong pull, or an unexpected slackening of the line, I set the hook immediately. Feeling that unnatural pressure on their jaw, they will soon eject the bait. When that occasion happens, before I finally wake up and set the hook, nothing. I guess all I can say is the only thing sadder than a lethargic steelhead is a lethargic steelheader. Those two articles from both 2010 and 2011, of course, still hold true to this day. In high water, there are places to look for them. And in cold water, you'd be surprised what they'll do for the right bait. So thanks again for listening, and please subscribe to our podcast and take a look at SalmonTroutSteelheader.com. Subscribe and support Salmon Trout Steelheader and get issues of the magazine and the latest articles from the finest authors delivered to your door. Thanks again, and look for future episodes. Please share this with your friends. Take care.